0: All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight, if you want to turn your Bibles to Hebrews 9, that's where we'll be. Hebrews 9 tonight. We covered a lot of this last week. Sometimes I get excited because I study ahead, and some of the things for tonight have already come out in chapter 8 for sure, so we'll go through this pretty quickly. Um, but there are a few things I want to point out and bring out that I maybe have missed last week. So um, we'll pray. We'll get started, Lord. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for the sing, the singing time, the worship time that we've had so far. We thank you for the children's ministry that's taking place right now, and for all those that are prepared lessons for those little kids. We pray that you bless their time. I know that it's a, it's quite a sacrifice, and and it's been a long day for everybody, and. There they are teaching and and continuing on with uh, serving you. And I just pray that you bless those teachers and bless those kids and bless us as well. As we get into your word, we pray that, uh, as Aaron prayed, that you'd be our teacher and guide tonight, that your Holy Spirit would have his way and uh, show us, Lord, uh, you, closer to you, um, more about you, Lord, that we'd walk um, tomorrow and the next few days, until Sunday anyway, Um, with just more knowledge and more understanding in our hearts of who you are, what you've done for us, and, um, more, more steadfast and sure in Jesus name. Amen. And that's why we study. And that's why we read verse by verse. It's to establish our faith. It's to build our faith and encourage us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's no other way to do it. It's the way God prescribed it for us and decided that's how we operate, um, Trying to explain to a lost and dying world that they're meant to operate in a way that uh, they receive from God, they're receptors you know um, we, God initiates his relationship with us, He shows his love while we're still enemies of of His He demonstrates His love for us and all we do is receive and when we're not receiving that and when we're not accepting of what God has for us, we feel lost and we feel uh, when well, we feel like we're wandering, you know. Um, and so God is trying to give us a beacon of light uh, in this, in his scriptures, to show us, look, come to this. I, I was reading an article. Wonderful. I, I can't believe it took them this long to do this, but in the Sahara desert, they've decided to, wherever there's a water well or an oasis, they have a, they have a beacon of light that is illuminated only at night, obviously only in the darkest parts of the night. Uh, and they got solar panels and everything that just goes, just shoots up. You know, and so wherever you are in the desert, if you're lost, you're driving, and I don't know what they do in the Sahara Desert, I'd avoid it altogether. But for some reason, people are out there. They can come, they can see that light. So in the daytime, they, see, they, they don't know where they're going, you, you can't see it. But at nighttime, there's that beacon, and that's when you move, it's at night, you know, because you don't have to expel so much energy, you don't have the sun beating down on you, you walk towards that beacon of light, you know. And we live in a lost and dying world, a dark world. And he's designed us to be that. His word is the light, for sure. Jesus is the light, but he dwells in us. And we're called to be that in this desert, you know, in this dark place. Um, in, in a person's darkest time in their life, they're looking. Somehow, some way, I need to survive this. And they're looking around for you. And they're looking around for me. And, and Christ in us is the idea. Um, and so tonight, um, His life, This this is to... This would be the uh, this would be the solar panels for us maybe is that a this is getting weird um, <laughs> it energizes us it gets us ready though you know to do what we're called to do this week and to never forget that's what we are and never to be surprised when someone walks up to us and says I I've been watching you I know that you know and you have answers I need answers from you sometimes we're caught off guard by that it's like wow boy, you're contacting me you know. Well, yeah, you've been putting out that beacon of light for a long time, you know. Well, hopefully tonight we're, we'll be a little brighter by the end of this. Because that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage the Hebrews to, to obviously stop going back to the law, the imperfect, the model, the the uh, the example of what heaven is and stay with the real and stay with the genuine and stay with the superior. It's better. Going back to... Rituals and going back to um, the sacrifices in the tabernacle and the temple, it's, it's inferior to what you have. And this is all new to them. This is... For their entire lives, they have only known God through this system. They could never approach God on their own. They always had to have a, another man who was called a priest. And they had to go to that priest because he was the one that would intercede and be the mediator between God and the people. And so they would have to go to this man. And you know how we are? We're not very good at this sometimes. When, it, when people come to us and say, I've got this sin that I need dealt with. I need to go to God with these sacrifices. Dude, you got a lot of sheep with you today. It's hard not to let that come out how many animals are you sacrificing this Saturday? I had a, it was a rough week, you know, One, two, three, four, five, six. We don't do a very good job of that. We bring condemnation. We don't mean to, but we do it sometimes. And that's all they've ever known is it's Saturday and I've got to go to the temple. In fact, if that wasn't bad enough, they had the The court of the Gentiles, you remember that place? That was a place where the non-Jews who were coming to the faith or who were in the faith could come and pray. That's as close as they could get was this court of the Gentiles. It was full of money changers because not only did you have to drag 27 lambs in with you because you blew it this week, but then you had to exchange those lambs for temple lambs because these lambs probably aren't certified you couldn't use Roman coin. You had to use temple coin, and the exchange rate was horrible. And it made, it made it to a place where, even back in the Old Testament, the people hated to come to worship. They hated it. They abhorred it. They had to, but they hated it. Okay, so you've got this Jesus who's come, and this writer of Hebrews has tried to explain that this Jesus has replaced all of it. And it is no longer an external coming to God through men, through rituals, through sacrifices. That's all gone. And now it's a spiritual walk. I think Mariah and my favorite moment in the chosen when we were watching is, I think Nathaniel, but that's my favorite. What is your favorite? I forgot. Nathaniel. Oh my goodness. If you don't know the story of Nathanael, I'm going to read it to you. It's out of uh, John 1, very first chapter, verse 43, though, way down in the chapter. Nathanael's had it rough. He's had a day. Beginning in 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip... He went and found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found the Messiah. That's what he's saying. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Just come and see. Come and see. Now remember, Nathanael has only drawn close to God as much as he wanted to through the system. That's it. Now he's going to meet, he's going to meet the one he's always wanted to meet. He doesn't know it yet. He thinks he's just going to meet. It. He's already critical. He's already negative, right? He's from Nazareth. This is going to be rich, you know. Probably got a hayseed accent and everything to go along with that. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no deceit. Now, the word deceit there, the the word there is Jacob. And I'm looking at this guy coming, and there's no Jacob in him. He's a true Israelite. There's no Jacob in him. He's a true man wanting to be governed by God. He's not a Jacob who wants to govern himself, a a deceiver, a tricky Jake. And and Nathaniel's blown away by this because that's something that's in somebody's heart. Maybe you're hoping everybody would recognize that about you, but this guy I've never met before, and this guy says this about me. Behold, an Israelite, a governed by God person, in whom is no Jacob. Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now he's alone. Nathaniel's alone under the fig tree. That's where you study. That's where you get close to God. The fig tree was a place of study. You gathered the fig tree. Your rabbi would meet you there or whatever. But he went to the fig tree and he's sitting there. And he's, I want, I, and as close as I've never heard God talk to me. I've never been in the presence of the Lord. I've never been a priest. I've never been able to go to the holy place or the holy of holy places. I've never been able to go where my heart wants to go. So I sit underneath that tree and I open the book and I pour my heart out to God. And I don't even know if he hears me or not. Jesus said, I saw you there. I saw you. And Nathanael immediately knew, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered, said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, why do I share that story tonight? Because Nathan experienced, felt, understood for the first time that I can come into the presence of God me and him, these 12 men walked with God on earth like Adam and Eve used to do before the fall and sat by fires and listened to him talk and it is that now. Going to the temple? Okay. But nothing like the conversations we're having around the fire. Nothing about nothing like the intimacy we have with him. When we're just walking and talking, we can ask him anything, anytime. He's super patient. You know? The writer of Hebrews desperately wants the Hebrews who may not understand what they have in Jesus to understand what they have in Jesus. See, we've never known that. None of us have ever had to go through a ritual to get to God. None of us have ever had to go through a priest. Some of you may have grown up that way, but you're not there anymore. But most of us have never had to go through a system where God is distant, far away, and could not be approached by us. So we've always known this. And so that's why it's so important for us to read this Hebrews is to understand, you know what it could have been without Jesus. It could have been the temple sacrifices, rituals, baptisms, offerings, uh, feasts, all these things, a ceremony, all ceremony. It causes us to appreciate it. I hope. And so The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, verse one, then indeed, even the first covenant, the Old Testament, they toggle between those words, had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was prepared. And here's how it was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the veil, the second veil inside that big blue curtain we talked about last week. The part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim of glory. Now, those were embroidered all the way around it, you know, but on on the mercy seat, there are these two angels that would, you know, bring their wings together. And so right above the mercy seat were these uh, angels. Um, and, and there were also some embroidered on the on the on the walls there. Um, of these things, we can now speak. We cannot now speak in detail. Okay. In other words, that's the best we had of an example, a copy of what heaven looked like. That was the whole point of the whole tabernacle. We we went over that pretty thoroughly last week. Um. Now, he says we can't speak of it in detail, but there's someone who can, isn't there? John. You turn to Revelation 4. It's kind of neat. This is after the church age, after chapters 2 and 3. John, symbolic of the church, I believe, (laughs) begins verse 1, chapter 4. After these things, after what things? After the church age, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you the things that must must take place after this. After this, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven. He's seeing the real. What what Paul says we cannot, or the writer of Hebrews says we cannot speak of, we cannot really talk about in detail, John can. God brought him up and said, this is what that whole tabernacle, this is what the temple is supposed to reflect. You get to see it. He says, there's this throne and one that sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like jasper and sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne an the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed with white robes. And they had crowns and gold on their heads, crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. This is the menorah on the left-hand side. You see you what know, i And so John gets to describe the actual, what what the writer of Hebrews says, we can't really talk about. Well, John does. That's the real. That's the genuine. that's That's the point of all of it. Now remember, he's writing this six years prior to the destruction of the temple. And that's why last week he said it's about to absolutely be destroyed there's nothing there's not gonna be anything left the first is obsolete and beginning to vanish away ready to vanish away completely in six years and never see it again and it's so important that he wrote it right then so important that he wrote it six years prior to the destruction of the temple what if he had written it afterwards it would sound like an excuse well since we don't have the temple anymore we really don't need it anymore because Jesus does all these things. And It almost sounds like, yeah, okay, you're just making excuses for not having a place to worship anymore. He says, no, I'm going to tell you now while it's still standing and operational. Smoke's still going up. Priests are still busy doing all their things. Sacrifice is happening. Everybody's still doing their thing. In, in fact, the disciples were even showing up there to pray. Right? We know that. But in six years, it's all gone. And I'm trying. We're easing our way out of this. He, he's not there anymore. You guys are all still doing the, the dance, but no one's watching, you know. And when it vanishes away, when it's gone, when six years are up, and the Roman government comes in and absolutely destroys this thing, and not one stone is going to be left on top of another, just like our high priest told us, Jesus. I want you to know you haven't lost anything. I'm trying to do something spiritual now. God wants you to have a spiritual relationship with you, like Nathaniel. You don't have to have a person anymore. He dwells in your heart. You don't have to ask somebody to ask somebody to ask somebody. You can ask him yourself. You can boldly come in, and that's what he's trying to explain here in chapter 9. You can boldly come to that throne of grace and mercy, the mercy seat, anytime with boldness. Nothing is hindering you from coming close what you've always longed to have, that close relationship with with the Lord, it's possible now. Jesus has made the way. Verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the tabernacle, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, that holy of holiest, the holy place, you know, the inner place, The high priest went alone once a year, but not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic. For the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience. It cannot touch the inner man. It cannot touch your mind and your heart. It could only do superficial cleansing. It had the appearance of, it had the likeness of, but it never touched the heart. The conscience was never cleansed. The things that the priests would do, concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings or baptisms is another word for that. And fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation, until the time that it all comes to pass. You see, until the time that God makes it right, Jesus shows up. You guys wanting to go back to this. I'm trying to show you how inferior it is. And he's going to take several chapters to do this until he gets to 11 when he talks about faith. And faith replaces the entire system. It's only by faith we come to Christ now. It's only by faith we enter in. It's only by faith there is nothing else that can bring us close to God. This conscience that he's talking about here, this inner man... All of the sacrifices, everything the priest did, every festival, every new moon, every ordinance, every law, never touched, never once touched the problem, ever. It only exposed it. It only showed it. That's all it could do. You got people going, you know, 45 miles an hour past the school, 45 miles an hour past the school, right? And someone sticks up a 25 mile an hour speed limit, they just kept going that's all the law ever did it was perfect it was fine but it never solved the problem of the heart it never stopped the problem likewise the law this conscience is a big deal 1st Peter chapter 3 verses 21 through 22 Peter even tries to allude to this look don't think of water baptism as some sort of ritual required for salvation I hate to keep harping on this but it's hard not to make the contrast here it can't be you're going back to a ritual. You're going back to a ceremony. You're going back to something that's external. And so he ex- actually explains it. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Parenthetical statement. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh. Not the external. Not the thing he's talking about here in chapter 9. All these different washings. But the answer of a good conscience towards God. The part that the law and the rituals and the sacrifices could never touch. The baptism that comes from Jesus. A Holy Spirit baptism. A baptism that comes from Christ. That cleanses the heart. That a water baptism can't touch. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's your baptism. Who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers. Having been made subject to him. Now, Peter writes that because that's what the writer of Hebrews is about to explain to us. That Jesus went into the, the real sanctuary, the real holy of holies, not the fake one that the high priest went into your your men. Verse eleven. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from the dead works or from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now that was a long segment to read. Three eternals here. You've got the eternal redemption, the eternal spirit and the eternal inheritance. The reason he brings that up three different times is this is permanent and this is everlasting. The old covenant, the first covenant was not. It was temporary and it was only in anticipation of this. And now this is here. And you have this. You have eternal redemption. Your redemption never, ever ends. You never will lose it. You are redeemed. It's permanent. It's fixed. It's done once for all. It's done by the eternal spirit. Jesus is God come in the flesh. It's absolutely perfect. And you have an eternal inheritance. You never have to worry about losing that. You know, when, when you're in heaven, that's it. There's no exit. I'm so thankful for that. We dwell forever with him. I can't wait for him to come. In fact, in the end of this chapter nine, he ends with that and He's coming. Get everything right, you know. Not for sin this time, but to make everything right. Thank goodness. As we see all these things happening around us. Everything before this was a superficial cleaning. It was all external, but it never touched the heart. It it would be as silly as me saying, I'm sorry I sinned, I'm going to go wash with soap. It it doesn't do any good. This, uh, This blood... When he says, um, "Let me find the section. I want to read it perfectly." Um, oh, he's about to move into in this in this next section sixteen on. Um, he's going to talk about a last will and testament, this this New Testament, right? And that's what he means by testament. We think of Old Covenant, New Covenant, and, and the word is the same, covenant and testament, and he toggles between the meanings here. Um, uh-huh. But testament in this next section is a last will and testament. So before we get there, he says, very importantly, um, he is the mediator of the New Covenant by means of death. Ah. Uh, if you have a rich uncle, right? And you're in his last will and testament, there's an inheritance waiting for you. When do you get the inheritance? Not till he dies, right? And she keep calling him and checking up on him. How you doing there uncle Bob? You don't need vitamins. You're okay. You know? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it isn't in force until he actually goes, until he perishes, right? That was why Jesus had to die. If I don't die and anybody that denies that Christ died, then the Testament isn't in force. The New Testament isn't in force. Does that make sense? Most of you probably never run into that kind of weird doctrine or strange twist on Scripture. It's there for a reason it allows people to sin. And so they say, oh, "Well, Jesus didn't really die. It doesn't really matter. He never really rose from the dead. None of the, no, no real miracles. All these things, you know, are meant to make other people allow them to sin. And, and so you've got to follow the trail to see it. So the writer here, the Holy Spirit, writes this and says, by means of his death, the new covenant is now in force. He had to die. It was God's idea. And thus, when he died, we get an an eternal inheritance of heaven. It's ours. It's been given to us. We're the beneficiaries of his death. We cash in. It's a horrible way to look at it, but it's true. Thank goodness, right? Now, I, I emphasize these things because... Like I said, we've never experienced this Old Covenant relationship with God. And to be honest, that's why a lot of the New Covenant people say we don't read the Old Covenant because they don't want us to be tempted to go back to it, which we do sometimes. So they're right with their fears. There is this desire to all of a sudden start keeping some of the feasts and some of the tabernacles, thinking that it just makes us look more genuine, you know, more, more rich, fulfilled, and, and the writer here is saying, no, 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 knowing about it is enough. What you have is it's Nathaniel kind of faith, Nathaniel kind of relationship with God, something that everybody in the world wanted. Everybody in the Old Covenant, everybody in the Old Testament wanted this that you have right now. They coveted this. They longed to be those people alive when this happened, you see. And for us to say, let's go back and do these other things, because it seems quaint. You know? Kitsch, is that the right word? You know? Oh, look at that. Oh, isn't that cool? Look at that. That church has got, hmm. Going back to that is, well, it's foolish. It doesn't make any sense. Verse 16, for where there is a testament, a last will and testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. Something had to die is what he's saying. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, uh, hyssop, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. So even in the Old Testament, we did this. I'm telling you, the New Testament, we're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. His death, his blood, has enforced or caused to put in force this New Testament. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no remission of sins without this. There's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. It had to happen. In Psalm 51, verses 16 through 17... David writes in the old covenant under the old law in anticipation of the new in understanding of the new for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it you do not delight in burnt offerings the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart these O God you will not despise I know that you're not looking for the external cleansing you're looking for a changed heart on the matter, in fact, that's why the law came. The law came the law came to bring dread. it came to bring the fear of the Lord that's what the law was supposed to do before the law and we've talked about this Abrahamic covenant, this before. You know, covenant that they had with God. He was—he was a man of faith. He—he um, he was justified by faith. He—he he even tithed ten percent back then. There was—there was wine and bread involved. We don't know to what extent. There's just a whole lot going on back here. That looks a whole lot like the new covenant, right? Well, somewhere along that line between Abraham and and Jacob, they'd lost that fear. They'd lost that dread. It was just a oh. Oh, well, I sinned last Friday. So tomorrow morning on Saturday, I got to bring a lamb. Come on, lamb. Here's my lamb. And they thought nothing of it anymore. It lost that. There was even sacrifices. You've got Adam and Eve that are, uh, no, plants aren't going to do it. You're going to need animal skin. So for the first time, they've seen some animals killed. And now they're wearing the skin of the dead animal to show them this is what your sin produces. It produces death. It's the first time. Then you've got their sons right afterwards, Cain and Abel, right? And Abel offers up the good sacrifice and Cain offers up the bad sacrifice because he tries to offer fruit, plants again. He says, no, no, you've got to offer. The blood has to be shed for the remission of sins. And he got so mad about that idea that he kills his brother over the deal. He says, why don't you just do what I asked you to do? I want a broken and contrite heart, Cain. I want a broken and contrite heart, David. And David knew that. That's all he wants from us still to this day. I want to touch the heart. I want the new covenant to be something that works like we sang from the inside out. That's why we sing that song. I want to, I I do want to have an appearance of being a child of God all the time. And I'm also very aware that my heart isn't like a child of God all the time, but I want it to be there. That's my goal. That's my, that's my desire. So I'm all for, the, for, for being kind to people and, and doing what I'm supposed to do as a child of God for people. But I also know in my heart, like David did, you're looking at changing my heart so that those thoughts don't even come up anymore. That my response in those situations is unfleshy. That I don't have to be fleshy and repent of flesh and come back in the spirit, but to actually respond in the spirit in the first place. So from the inside out, God, consume us and change us. Change my heart. Praying, God, help me. I don't want to say I'm sorry forever. I want to I do it right the first time, you know. David understood that. And then Jesus, Matthew 9, 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we used that, I think last Sunday, the same verse. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I would rather you be, I would rather show mercy than to have you kill another animal. In fact, a couple of times in the Old Testament, he's so tired of their flippancy. They says, you're, 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 Sacrifices nauseate me. When you keep bringing these lambs, you misunderstand entirely. I don't enjoy screaming bloody lambs every Saturday. I want you to show up one of these Saturdays and they didn't do anything wrong because your heart was for me, because your heart was for your fellow man. I don't like it when you live like your father, Satan, all week long and then bring these lambs and plead the blood of lamb over your life and then, oh, God's okay with it. No, I don't like that. Your your sacrifices nauseate me. They're supposed to nauseate you. (laughs) They're supposed to make you sick that you've got to do this. Adam and Eve were sick to their stomachs. Can you imagine, for the first time, wearing the skin of one of the animals that they named? It would have been horrible for them. And it was supposed to be. Now, now knock it off was the idea. We don't need to do this all the time, do we? Did you learn? You know, I'm never going to do that again. Stupid fruit. You know, Give me an axe. No, it's got to be there. I just want you to stay away from it, you know? Verse 23, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, the sprinkling of the blood that he talked about earlier. But the heavenly things themselves, the better sacrifice than these, something far, far more valuable. For Christ has not entered the holy place or places, made with hands, which are a copy, or copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should suffer, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He doesn't do that. That's important. Gently, carefully, without pointing a finger too strongly, Jesus died once for all. He does not repeatedly crucified. He's not on the cross anymore. He was buried into a tomb and resurrected. It's once for all. When you go through. I'm being careful because it's from a pure good heart and love that I say this. We are very good at. Reinstituting all this old testament stuff into modern day Christianity, and we've got priests and we've got continual sacrifices that happen every time you show up, and we're continually crucifying Christ, and we're continually spilling his blood, and we're continually. And that is an Old Testament model put on a New Testament, and it's not supposed to be there. He's very clear about this. This isn't just for the Jews. This is for any Gentile that tries to bring into the Christian faith Old Testament ways. You can't. Not like the old priests had to offer up sacrifices every single time we got together, but once for all. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, not repeatedly, only once. To those who eagerly wait for him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. The second time Jesus, we're getting ready to celebrate the anniversary of Christ's first advent. That's what it means. The first appearing of the Lord here on earth. His birth. And he came for a specific purpose at that time. And that was to take care of the sins of the world. Will you at this time restore the kingdom? No, that's not what I'm here for this time. Are you going to overthrow the Roman yoke and flip to Hosanna? Save now from the Romans. He says, no, not this time. I'm going to the temple because we've got to deal with a bigger issue here. And it isn't Rome. I know it feels like Rome. I know it feels like that. It's not. It's your heart. I've got to take care of your heart this time. And that's the first covenant. The first time, the first appearing, the first advent now, he encourages us here. There's a second advent coming. There's a second appearing coming. And that's when he writes everything. That's when he establishes himself as king on earth. Not just in heaven, not just in the throne room, but here. My goodness. But not for sin, but to establish it. Sin's been taken care of. There's nothing else to deal with there. The only thing left to do is to deal with who goes to hell and who goes to heaven and who establishes the kingdom and get them all Put where they need to go and boom, the kingdom is, there he is, you know. That's the second advent. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Do you eagerly await for, for Christ? Does it bring a smile to your face to think that he's coming or does it bring a little bit of dread? Are you a little fearful? I don't want him to come now. I'm not ready. Guys, get ready then. And get ready. He's for you. He's not against you. He didn't come the first time because he was mad at you. He came because you're sick, because you have sin, and because you needed a, a physician, someone to heal you, and you couldn't heal yourself. And that's what I'm here to do, Jesus says. I'm here to heal you. I want you to get better. I want you to be saved. I want you in heaven with me forever. I'm not looking to... There's some, some criteria that you have to meet. It's a really narrow road, and I hope you make it. Starting interviews now. That'd be horrible because we think it's about how good we were. We think it's about how long it's been since our last sin. We have all sorts of things we have in our mind and that's just not how God works. There's no, my son died for the sins of the world. Once for all, they were all placed on the cross at the exact same time. It's done. There's no more sin to deal with. The Only difference is now. Do you believe that I provided a way of salvation for you? Do you trust in me? Do you come to me by faith because you can't bring a lamb, you can't bring a bull, you can't bring a goat. None of those things work anymore. Only way you can come to me is because you believe me by faith that my son died on the cross for your sins. And that's just too good to be true, isn't it? It's too huge. A couple times in the scripture, they even bring it up. What great salvation is this? How great is this? It's like sometimes the writers are so busy getting everybody saved. They just stop and they pause and say, this is really big. It's unbelievable how big this is. Like Nathaniel, that's why I started with that story, because it makes me so emotional. Because that's what I want in my heart. That's what I have in my heart. I I have this constant dialogue with God going on. It's all the time. It's constant. I can't make it stop. Wonderful. I don't mind. They didn't have that. They couldn't draw near to God. Tonight you can. If you don't know for sure, if you're not excited about Jesus coming back again and you want to be, you're going to pray right now. Every one of us in this room, every one of us that is saved, a believer, a born-again believer, had to do the exact same thing you're going to have to do right now. None of us are exempt from this. We had to make that personal. It wasn't going to church. It wasn't part of a group that I was a part of. Had not. It was between me and my Savior. It was me, Nathaniel, underneath the tree by myself with Jesus and him seeing me and me seeing him. You're going to have to do that. You have to do that for salvation. And tonight I hope you do if you haven't. So that you can eagerly wait for the appearing and look for the second coming. Let's pray. Jesus, what a beautiful section of scripture for us tonight. We are greatly anticipating this Christmas season. Excited, I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be December 25th every single day, all the way up till December 25th. God, I'm so excited for this time. To focus on you, to think about you, to remember what you've done for us, to enjoy the, your presence in my life. And Lord, there are some here today that want that, know that, are beginning to feel that and can see you looking at them tonight and can feel that tug on their hearts and they want to respond to that. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I didn't know how I was going to get close to you. I didn't know how I was going to experience your love. But you came, and sent your son Jesus. To make that way for me. There's no ritual I can do. There's no hoop I can jump through. There's no amount of good that I can do. To make up for the bad. I believe by faith. That Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That he paid the penalty. And there's, there's no distance between us anymore. Because he's made that way for me. When Jesus says. He was the way. The truth and the life. I believe that tonight. And I'm taking that way tonight. I am. I am. I am. Drawing near to you tonight, God, as you draw near to me. I am accepting your forgiveness for all my sins. I'm accepting your mercy. I'm accepting the love that you have for me. I thank you for it tonight. I want to give you my life back. I don't want to go on tomorrow sinning the way I've always sinned, living my will versus your will in my life. I want your will done in my life. So I want to give you my life tonight, God. I want to live from this night forward for you like you are for me. I just thank you for that, God. I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would have those moments with you this this Christmas season, God. A Nathaniel moment where we were talking or we were reading or we were praying and you confirm it. I saw you. Lord, thank you for these folks tonight. Thank you for the children's ministry again. Thank you for the worship and the songs that we sang. Help us to stay in this attitude of prayer the rest of the week, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you.